0: Was the appeasement of the Nazi Party so great as to prevent truth? And is that where we are now with the Chinese Communist Party?
1: Welcome to The Shape of Dialogue. Today I'm joined by David Novak. David is a documentarian, and he's made a film called All Static and Noise. Thank you for coming on the show.
0: Thank you so much. I'm happy to be
1: here. Yeah, it's great having you here. Now, first of all, who is David Novak?
0: (laughs) You know, that's an existential question I've been asking a long time. Uh, So I am a filmmaker. Um, I come from New York. Uh, I was born and raised in the New York suburbs, and... um, came into film a little bit late. I was a bioengineer prior to becoming a filmmaker. And even before making films, I was working in the film industry as a re-recording engineer. So um, sound is my specialty. Re-recording engineering means sort of at the end of the whole post-production process, the sound has been built by sound editors and it goes into a big studio with a big board and mixing faders and whatnot. And the re-recording engineer is the person who then sort of creates, right, um, through mixing the final sound of a film.
1: Sort of like the conductor of an orchestra.
0: Yeah, very much. It's very much like conducting. And I I also always think of it as carving, right? It's like I'm I'm, I'm given all of these elements um, that are, they used to be quite raw, the elements. Lately they're less raw because the, sound designers and sound editors can do much more work digitally before it gets to the mixing stage Uh, but then it's sort of sculpting it and making the sound effects work with the dialogue work with the music getting those balances putting in sort of special sound effects to things treating things differently uh and creating kind of the the not just the overall soundtrack the overall sound of the film but but the, the waves of energy and relaxation and energy and relaxation, you really uh, dig into the kind of the momentum of a film. Because uh, in an interesting way, sound really plays with temporality in film, like your sense of time. Uh, it's very much related to picture editing, but sound manipulates it in very interesting ways. So you sort of slow down and then rush forward. And from doing that for quite a number of years and being in front of a a big screen in a mixing studio working on the same five five minutes of film, you know, for hours on end, um, the the language of film really imprinted. And when I found that there were some stories that I wanted to have told, I thought, well, I should go out and tell them myself. And that was how I gradually transitioned into, uh, into making films.
1: So how long have you made films for?
0: Uh, my first film was released in 2008. Uh, it was called Burning the Future, Coal in America. It's a film about mountaintop removal coal mining in the United States, uh, in, in West Virginia mostly, and also in Kentucky, which is this insane process of blowing off mountaintops in order to get at coal that can't otherwise be accessed. The devastation to the environment is um, Is huge and as a result the health devastation to people who live in the area uh, is is really bad Uh, cancer rates are among the highest in the United States in that area Um, the water is polluted the plants that are grown on the soil carry heavy metals in them Uh, and by and large many of the people in the area live off the land you know not entirely uh, but they're very proud of their heritage of living off the land, and, and many still do. So it's really it's really devastating for, for the area.
1: And and what else have you made?
0: After that, I produced a film on North Korea, called Kim Jong Kim Jong Ilia is a flower, uh, a hybrid flower that was created for the dictator Kim Jong Il. Uh, and so he had this, this hybrid flower created and named after himself, which is kind of lovely <laughs> in, in a sick sort of way. Um, and so uh, that film, um, I only produced it, I didn't direct that film, but it was based on uh, testimonies of people who had escaped from North Korea. After that, I made a film called Finding Babel as director, uh, which is a film about a Russian Jewish writer named Isaac Babel who wrote in the 1920s and 1930s and was um, he was eventually executed under Stalin in 1940. That was a fascinating film to make. His literature is amazing. I highly recommend it to all of your listeners. Um, he's considered by many to be perhaps the best short story writer of the 20th century. And his writing is concise and poetic and um, it it punches you in the gut, and it can make you roll on the floor laughing as well. Um, he has two series that are, that are that he's best known for. One is called the Red Cavalry stories, just fascinating. During the Red Cavalry stories, he he had embedded himself as a young man as a journalist uh, with the army during the civil war between the Soviets and the Poles, and it was all in eastern Ukraine. West, I'm sorry, it was all in western Ukraine. And he was this like little Jewish guy with spectacles on his eyes and very early balding and he couldn't have looked sort of more like the kind of intellectual Jew from Odessa that he was and he went under a pseudonym pretending to be Russian and everybody kind of knew he wasn't Russian but there was almost a gentleman's agreement while he's running around with with the Cossacks basically through this region during a war against the Poles um, and it's a it's a fascinating story and it's it, it's pretty devastating um, in terms of the kinds of crimes against humanity that he witnessed and documented and he wrote a companion diary that came out some years later called the 1920 diary Very worth reading as a companion piece. But then he has this other series called the Odessa Stories or Odessa Tales, depending on the translation you're reading, um, that are very, very funny. And they are about the Jewish mafia in Odessa, before the revolution. And it's sardonic and it's filled with really funny language. And some of the translations are better than others. I don't speak Russian, but I've read quite a number of translations. And because he comes from this sort of like Jewish Yiddish background, that's that's what he's trying to capture in the inflections, even, even in the Russian. So some of the translators are able to pick that up. And I found that um, when I started reading them, hearing my grandmother's voice, because she spoke Yiddish. Because you're, you're Jewish. Yeah, yeah. And so when I would hear... Her voice in my head, and sort of put that accent <laughs> on on the English. All of a sudden, I found myself laughing. So. Um,
1: yeah. Well, that, that resonates with me because my grandmother was also Jewish, and you know, quite a lot of Yiddish in, involved in the conversations. Yeah. Um, and um, I'll just you know, for the for the listeners, I will put all those um, I'll put some that, that information in the show notes. Cool. So, yeah. Um, now, and your latest film.
0: All static in noise. Right. Yeah, this is a different piece altogether. Um, in one way, it relates to the others because the others do all have a thread of human rights uh, embedded in them. But this is a story about a, a genocide that's happening now on, on the planet um, in Western China in an area called the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Um, that's what the Chinese officially call it. It's usually referred to as Xinjiang. Um, Many of the Uyghurs in the diaspora call it East Turkestan, which is what its name was uh, up until 1949 when it became part of China. And um, I would say about 10 countries at this point have declared it a genocide. Some disagree that maybe it's not a genocide. Genocide has a lot of definitions to it. So it gets complicated. It's certainly a cultural genocide and everybody agrees on that. And what, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, the Chinese are really trying to, the Chinese government is trying to obliterate the Uyghur culture. And they've done this a number of ways. One is they've made um, the practice of Islam pretty much illegal. Uh, there are, the, the Uyghur people are Muslim. I should add, this isn't only happening to the Uyghurs. Um, In in the film, we also cover Kazakhs who live in the region, and it's happening to Kazakhs as well. It's happening to Hui as well, another Muslim group in the area. Um, And there are two or other much smaller, two or more much smaller uh, Muslim minorities in that area. And the world refers to it as the Uyghur, Crisis. Usually, are the
1: is the biggest population. They
0: are. They're yeah. the biggest group, um, and they are certainly the most targeted because, as the biggest group, they sort of have the most cultural power or the most at stake culturally. Uh, so practicing Islam became problematic. Uh, it had to be done sort of undercover, um, and that didn't last too long because the government started a program where Han Chinese uh, would move into Uyghur homes as sort of auntie and uncle. And in that position, they're kind of monitoring what's going on, right? They're living in the house and they're monitoring what's going on. So it became even more problematic to be able to-
1: Sorry, just on that. Yeah. So you've actually got Han Chinese people moving in. So essentially spies. Moving into a house.
0: Yes. Yeah. Now, what does the Han Chinese person...
1: That, like every, every Uyghur house or what?
0: But my understanding, and from the testimony we've heard, is that it was every Uyghur house. Um, I don't know if there a, are exceptions to that. You,
1: you're talking about millions of households? Yeah. That's extreme.
0: And most of those Han Chinese are not coming from the region. So they're also simultaneously populating the region with more Han Chinese. Yeah, it's kind of it, it's really shocking. Um, the Han Chinese who are or the aunt and uncle, right? And there's a number of programs; they have different names. We don't need to go into the details, but they would be there, um, cook meals with them, go out into the town with them. Um,
1: so you, essentially, chaperones. Essentially, yeah. What twenty four seven?
0: Yeah, they live in the home. I mean, as you note in the film, right? Um, yeah. They they even they, they sleep there, um, and there's definitely improprieties that happen as a result of that.
1: M- meaning sexual abuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is it are, are they all men or are they some of the no so some spies? Are women.
0: S- some are women. Some yeah. are women, and I'm not even sure the extent to which we can call them spies. I mean. I don't know if in their mind they're spies. I don't really quite understand their position, right? Um, the, the Chinese government's position on what it is that they're doing is that they are preventing religious extremism and terrorism and this is the blanket excuse that they use for all of the policies that are in place. Now, this becoming family policy is just one of them. And I could imagine that if you're a Han Chinese person, you might think you're doing good for the country by going into these homes and making sure that there isn't radical, uh, radical thought going on, radical conversations. But at the same time, you're taking steps like monitoring people's phones, like making sure there's no Quran in the house, Like making sure there are no prayer rugs down on the floor being used, right? So um, it's very problematic and you do need to report back and there's a hierarchy of people to report back to. Other cultural genocide policies uh, include the shaving of beards. Men can't have long beards. Um, That's regarded as taboo. Because certainly, if you have a long beard, you're an extremist. Then, other things like being in touch with family members abroad, taboo. If you are in touch with family members abroad, I mean, I remember in 2018, 2017, 2018, maybe into early 2019, uh, people would just have very brief conversations where the person within the region would not really disclose anything. We're fine. We're fine. Everything's okay. And if if the person abroad were to press on any more information, they would immediately get pushed back. No, don't go there. Right. Um, after twenty nineteen, people were just gone. Like WeChat contacts would be deleted, and so deleted
1: the by by the
0: person in the region. So your mom will remove you from WeChat,
1: and and just. Tell people what WeChat is.
0: So WeChat is like WhatsApp, right? WeChat is a... a it's the biggest
1: a, a platform to communicate with. On. Uh,
0: yes, and it's not only used for communication. It's mm-hmm. used for buying things in the supermarket. It's used for getting train tickets. It's used for everything. It's a one, everything. one-stop shop. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, so so you're saying you're, your your mum outside of the region will just delete you off WeChat?
0: I'm saying your mom inside the region. Right. You're outside the
1: region. Okay, I get it.
0: Right, you're living in Turkey, for instance. And,
1: and so you're gone off, off her phone. You're gone off the phone. Yeah, because right. it's too, it, she's actually doing you a favor. Because she's doing
0: you a favor and herself a favor because yeah. if you're on her phone and you've been chatting and you're abroad, she's getting sent to a re-education camp. That's immediate grounds for being sent to a re-education camp because certainly if you're contacting your family member abroad, you're also a budding terrorist of some sort.
1: Yeah, in inverted commas. Yeah. Yeah. So re-education camps, and again, in inverted commas, is a euphemism for concentration camps. That's right. Yeah. So in the year 2023, we have concentration camps going on in China. We do.
0: Yeah. And concentration camps is a very loaded word. It's a very loaded yes. concept.
1: Yeah, well, then my next question was, can you... Um, go into detail what these so-called re-education camps are Yeah. what do they look like what what happens in them um, what happens to the the detainees how long do they stay there
0: yeah so there are hundreds of re-education camps uh, in addition to the re-education camps there are hundreds of new prisons in the area so um, and we can Discern between the two. For a prison, you've actually been convicted of some crime. What constitutes a crime that can send you to prison is is quite low, the bar is quite low. Um, but outside of that, you can be sent to a re-education camp. Let's say if you've been in touch with family members abroad or if you've traveled abroad, you're likely to end up in a re-education camp. Um, the first people who were taken into re-education camps were the intellectual elite. So there were some religious leaders. uh, There were scholars of all kinds, um, artists, people who have any kind of a following um, because they're well-known, poets, the like, right? But that expanded pretty rapidly into everyday people. So a re-education camp looks very much like a prison. Um, The ones that I have seen images of absolutely are prisons. Uh, there are purportedly some that are more like converted large schools uh, that don't quite look like a prison. They, uh, all of these re-education facilities had guard towers, barbed wire, walls you can't get through. They were prisons. Um, satellite imagery proved their existence and located them. And then once the Chinese government understood that satellite imagery was finding these things, they started taking down the towers because that was the most identifiable feature, right? Satellite images were even able to pick up um, people in uniforms, usually orange, depending on the place, uh, in lines outside in courtyards and 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 whatnot.
1: When you say people, the the prisoners. Detainees, yeah, yeah.
0: those regions, those those open areas began to be covered over time so that you couldn't see people anymore. Um, and so they look like prisons, they function like prisons. From all of the reports that we have, there's typically huge overcrowding in a cell, so much so that not everybody can lie down at the same time. So So, so,
1: uh, how many people? We're talking
0: between 20 and 40 in a cell, depending on the size of the cell. Um, People would, half would lie down, the other half stand up uh, to sleep, and they would take turns. During the day, people are typically just sitting, cross-legged, staring at a wall. Um, In some places, there are slogans on the wall. In some places, there might be a TV monitor that is, giving kind of pro-Chinese Communist Party propaganda, uh, pro-Xi Jinping propaganda, and then they're supposed to go to class, right? This is the re-education, is that they're supposed to go to class, and they go to class, and when they go to class, they're learning Mandarin. Um, Some of them already speak Mandarin very well, but that's what they're there for, and they're learning again the party line, the government line, Um, and this is supposed to make them into better Chinese citizens. We have testimony that they go to these classrooms in chains. They sit down, hand and feet, hand and feet in chains. They get to the classrooms and the teachers are not allowed to call anyone by a name. It's all numbers. Everybody has a number. just like you would imagine in a concentration camp. Uh, And it's heartbreaking. Um, We have very powerful testimony in the film from one such teacher who was able to get out of the country. And the only reason she was able to get out is because she's an Uzbek citizen. She's not a Chinese citizen. So she had been asked to teach, well, asked. She had been directed to leave the school where she was teaching and go teach in a camp. Um, So no choice. She had no choice. Um, And then as soon as she could get away, she did. Um, What else goes on in these camps? There's torture. People are brought in, um, if they're brought in because they've been in contact with somebody abroad, for instance, they're going to be asked, do you know this person? Do you know that person? They're interrogated. They're interrogated in tiger chairs. A tiger chair is a, kind of a torture chair that is ubiquitous in China. Uh, This is not only used in the concentration camps, it's used throughout China. Um, There are often spikes on the sides, so you have to sit still, you're chained, Uh, your ankles are chained not only to each other but also locked into the chair. Your hands are also locked in at the same time and you can be in a tiger chair for hours and hours and hours on end interrogated indefinitely. There's often cameras. It's often being videotaped while it's happening. Um, And some of our witnesses, actually all of our witnesses, talk about the tiger chair uh, in the film. There's definitely instances of rape. There's instances of forced sterilization. Um, It's, which we don't discuss in the film actually, but there's quite a bit of testimony out there. That your listeners can find
1: organ harvesting.
0: So there's a lot of evidence of organ harvesting. It's something else we don't include in the film because it can't be a hundred percent corroborated yet, right? We don't have a witness.
1: You, you have anecdotal evidence of it. Is that
0: well, what you yes? Said? We have evidence of particular facilities that have been built uh, right next to hospitals with what's called the green corridor which is a a way to very quickly either get an organ to a hospital or get a person to a hospital for the surgery or to get to a heliport Um, and this is a population where every single person's DNA is already in a database so it's very easy to do organ matching
1: every single person's you know, is in a database. Can you just talk about that?
0: Yeah, well starting around um, it started in 2014 and it really escalated up into, into 2018 when when the big explosion of these camps happened, uh, which is that people living in the region, Muslims living in the region, I, I I don't know if this is true or not for the Han Chinese. I don't think so, but Muslims living in the re- in the region would um, have to periodically go into a police station with their phones. That's how it sort of started. And spyware would be put on the phones and they would know that. They would be told that there's spyware being put on the phones. Um, And this was sort of a first attempt to kind of get people to think twice about communicating abroad, think twice about having an image in their phone that's religious, which was something that got people sent away right away. Right? Um, And then they also had to provide spit samples for DNA. And if you don't, once the camps were built, if you don't comply, you're found and you're taken to the camps, right? So there was a lot of incentive to go in and give your DNA, give your spit sample, um, turn your phone in, have it looked at, uh, any other type of surveillance and control that they wanted to put in place. There was a lot of incentive to do so because otherwise you would be sent to the camps. Now we're talking about as much as... 20% Twenty percent of the population of the Uyghur population alone, being sent to the camps.
1: That's H- about how many? How many people? That's
0: about two million people. Um,
1: there. So, uh, going back to the definition of the word genocide. Yeah. Now,
0: genocide.
1: Ge- yeah. What? What is the? What is the
0: definition of the word genocide? Yeah. You know, I, I'm not sure. I think that we think of genocide as an act of killing. When you think back to Hitler, for instance, until, I don't know my dates exactly, maybe 1941, something like that, the concentration camps were forced labor camps and camps to hold people, most of whom were working in forced labor, not everybody. They became extermination camps. They became camps where if you couldn't work, you were exterminated. And ultimately, as the Germans started losing the war, or I should say, as the Nazis started losing the war, um, it turned into extermination for all Jews. As, as,
1: as, as fast as possible.
0: As fast yeah. as possible.
1: And we don't,
0: we don't have any evidence that that's going on. But we have evidence that what's going on is a lot of forced labor. So it seems to be at that state now of concentration camps with a lot of forced labor. So people are sent to the camps, it's not the entire population, right?
1: So yeah, because you said possibly 2 million incarcerated out of the population of 10 million.
0: Yeah, 10 to 12, something like that, yeah. 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 The exact numbers are sort of, are unknown. Mm -hmm. Um, But in conjunction with that, in conjunction with sending people away and the constant fear of being sent away and the fear of never returning because many many are not returning
1: does that does that mean they they're dead or or they just it's a life sentence we
0: have no idea mm-hmm. how many are dead absolutely no idea there are reports for instance um one person who's in the film we don't talk about this in the film but um Abdueli Ayyub, Ayub um, who is uh, one of our major contributors in the film? And we can talk m- yeah, m- more detail about Abduali, yeah. Um He has, uh, his sister died in the camps, and the family was notified that she died in the camps. And she was ultimately, I think, buried somewhere. And they Th- were.
1: They weren't given the body.
0: No. And they were told where she was buried. Now, how she died, we don't know. Right? Um, So it's very questionable. We just don't know. And what the Chinese government is saying now is that the re-education camps have been closed and that everybody has been graduated. And the people in the diaspora, and there are, you know, I mean, there's 300,000 Uyghurs in Turkey alone, right? There are many Uyghurs in the diaspora. they do not hear from people. So they don't know. They have no evidence that anybody who has disappeared, who they know, has been released. So it's very hard to say, oh, sure, people have been released. The other thing that we know is going on in terms of the closing of the camps is that some camps have been closed. That has been confirmed by independent press. That's been confirmed by satellite imagery. It's been confirmed by other sources other means but um, that's only some of the camps and what does it mean to graduate because
1: I just love the euphemisms
0: yeah you can graduate you can graduate from a camp and be sent to forced labor you can graduate from a camp be put into detention charged for a crime and be sent to prison and these things are happening so it's very unclear exactly what they mean by graduate. And we just don't have enough evidence to show that anybody is really being released. Um, certainly since COVID, which really locked down all communication because COVID became a means for uh, the Chinese government to be even tighter.
1: It's another excuse. Yeah. yeah. A very convenient
0: yeah. excuse. So genocide, does genocide require the murdering of a population? That's a little questionable and we don't know to what extent the population is in fact dying in camps and prisons. That being said, cultural genocide has a clear definition. It's more in lines with ethnic cleansing and it does not require murder
1: yeah ethnic cleansing is probably a better word isn't it yeah.
0: yeah yeah and yet quite a number of countries have declared this as a genocide yeah. um, more i would say more ubiquitously it's identified as crimes against humanity
1: yes yes and and major crimes against Ma- humanity
0: yeah. yeah yeah
1: why did you make the film
0: initially i was approached by janice Engelhart who's the producer of the film. She and I are producing it together. I was approached by her. I had toured China with one of my earlier films. And we met during that tour. I did a lot of teaching and universities and law schools, film programs and whatnot. It was a fantastic time in China for me. And she had been living in China for quite a while and seeing changes that were happening to her friends, to her Chinese friends. Uh, whereby people involved in culture who might have been a little bit on the edge or just a bit on the edge of um, sort of the party line uh, were finding themselves out of work, uh, dismissed from universities, couldn't get films funded anymore. And then other things started to escalate around her. For instance, in 2015, um, some civil rights attorneys who she knew were rounded up as part of a very big roundup of uh, of attorneys who were taken to detention centers and tortured into false confessions of of to, whatever.
1: To be re-educated. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, and she approached me to imagine some kind of a film that was about these negative changes in China that seemed to be happening all around her, uh, particularly from the time period that Xi Jinping was elected and yeah. into the present. And I said, well, let's start with Tiananmen Square, which many people don't know about anymore. Certainly young people don't know about it anymore. Even in the West? In the West,
1: that's right. Right.
0: Uh, let's sort of- Well, re- then,
1: then, then just for all the young people who are listening to this, what is Tiananmen Square? Just uh, briefly. So, yeah, so in
0: 1989, there was a, there was a democracy movement uh, in China uh, run by students. It was a student-led movement Uh, where Tiananmen Square, which is the massive and quite beautiful, really interesting square in Beijing, Um, the square was flooded by students, and there were days and weeks of protests and celebrations and actions and solidarity, and people came in from all over the country. People from different ethnic backgrounds came in from all over the country, um, including many Uyghurs who were there. There was one one Uyghur student leader. Um, and ultimately, this movement was squashed militarily uh, and many people were killed. And reports, I mean, your listeners can look online a- and get really interesting detailed stories about what happened there. I mean, reports range from 800 to maybe four or 5,000 in terms of the numbers who were killed. So it's a little, it's a little unclear. Uh, and interestingly, in Hong Kong, because Hong Kong at the time was British. Um, in Hong Kong, the sort of com- the commemoration of Tiananmen Square was very, very strong, and every year on June 4th, which is the date that it happened, uh, there would be a, a, a massive gathering in Victoria Square, which is the large square in Hong Kong, uh, with. Statues and sculptures and music and celebration and speeches and sadness and candlelight vigils and all of that. Um, and those continued until until two years ago. And we're talking, you know, five, six, seven hundred thousand people in the square, right? Very large numbers of people in the square. Um, so we were telling a story that was going to start in Tiananmen
1: and kind of end in Hong Kong. So essentially about the totalitarian nature of China. Yeah, right
0: told through these stories, including the story of these lawyers who had been rounded up, because that says a lot. What were most lawyers doing? Well, some were defending Uyghurs who had been arrested. Some were defending Falun Gong.
1: And these were Han Chinese lawyers? Han
0: Chinese lawyers, yeah. Um, Many were um, representing, for instance, rape cases against a party official, or Eminent domain cases where the metro is being expanded and people are being dislocated and they're not being treated fairly in the dislocation, just typical civil rights right oriented uh, legal work, all under the law, and actually the laws on the books in China are are great. <laughs> Prosecuting them is another story, but the laws are there. Um, they're great in theory. Yes. Yes. And so. While this was happening, while we started filming actually in in 2018, we started learning more about what was happening with the Uyghurs and initially decided to include that in this story. But then it became clear going into 2019 just how massive this Uyghur incarceration problem was. And we decided that it needed to be its own film because it is the biggest genocide whether it's a cultural genocide or 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 a murder genocide it is it is the biggest one happening now and for many 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 years on the planet and it's contemporary and it is happening under the watch of an economic superpower that is able to leverage its economic superpower to shut the world up about it.
1: Yeah, well, let, let's talk about the sort of the geopolitics of it all. Yeah. So, so you said 10 countries have um, stated it's a genocide. What are those countries and why? And, and you told me the other day New Zealand is not one. Yes. So then explain why a country like New Zealand with a very uh, liberal government at the moment is not coming out. Yeah. I think It's a genocide.
0: I don't have the full list. We could hop mm. online and find yeah. that list out. But um, so you,
1: you said America has...
0: America, Canada, um, I believe the UK. Uh, there was actually there was a big tribunal that was based in the UK I think in Sheffield. I'm not sure. Um, that declared it as such. The UN went as far as to declare it as crimes against humanities and the 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 chief of human rights at the UN at the time who was, who was running an investigation, interestingly, held back on releasing her report until a few hours before her term was up and then she left. Um,
1: and how, just out of interest, how long, was, was it held back for a month or, or three years?
0: It was held back quite a number of months. Yeah. Yeah, quite a number of months and um, she had made a trip she had been invited to the Uyghur region by, along with by, some, by the Chinese government by, along with some journalists and you know they we used to we used to watch films about about the Holocaust and see how you know they would march the media into a very happy concentration camp yeah, where well, Jews yeah, Jews were playing in the orchestra and yeah, all yeah. kinds of nice things. So
1: and in in the Soviet Union, the Potemkin villages. That's right. Yeah, they're they sham. That's right. they sham sort of shows for so, for for the outside world.
0: So these kind of shows with happy students and whatnot are um are are part of the propaganda machine. Um, but apparently she saw through them. Uh, but she she waited. I mean, there was a lot of pressure, I would imagine, on her to
1: right and what what did the report say
0: the report i don't want i don't want to get this wrong but i believe the report cited many of the facts that i'm speaking of but also crimes against humanities as a as a conclusion yeah to what was
1: happening yeah so it wasn't a whitewash
0: no the report was not a whitewash there were people who were very happy with the report because it it, it advanced the legitimacy, uh, or, or legitimized the storytelling of what's going on around this. And yet there were some Uyghur activists who were disappointed as well, because they didn't think that it went as far and disclosed as much
1: of what is going on. Yeah, so, so major Western countries have declared it a genocide, including, as I said before, the United States, which is pretty significant. So why wouldn't a country like New Zealand, who has a great history of advancing human rights um, within the country and around the world, why would a country like New Zealand—and I know you probably can't speak to this specific case, but talk about it in general—have not um, got on the bandwagon? Well, I was going to say you're a Kiwi; you tell me. <laughs> um, well, I'm not—I'm the wrong person to ask. <laughs> um, so why, at, why aren't, just to make it a general question, yes, why yes, aren't, yes. aren't smaller countries that have, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious what the answer is, that have um, significant trading relationships with China, why are they not coming out saying it's a human rights violation?
0: Yeah, the, I'm, the, look, the Chinese influence is very, very strong in very many countries. Um, it's economic ties, of course. Uh, no one wants to get into a trade war. With China over this issue, um, China has done things like um, the the Venice Biennale, for instance, which is this you know worldwide amazing art. Um, it's not even a fair, right? It's a it's, it's a festival. festival. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a top of the world art festival yeah. that v- incredibly prestigious to have your work shown there sort of like the pinnacle of... of, um, It's the Everest of the arts in a way. It is, yes, exactly. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was an exhibit um, just a few... This was about a month ago. uh, There was an exhibit there that was um, a filmmaker doing an installation. Uh, It was a a short sort of installation experience uh, that is about the Uyghur crisis. And as a result of that, the Chinese government pulled all their artists out, pulled all of their artist representatives out. Um, I don't know if they had any funding that they pulled out. That's possible. I don't know, actually. The article that I read about it did not state that. Uh, But they basically withdrew all participation from it. And that's problematic, right? Why is that problematic? Well, number one, maybe there was money involved. I don't know. Number two, if you are a festival like that, you want Chinese artists to be represented those are not doors that we want to close those are doors that we want to have open right I mean the arts and education are like the place where we can have these cultural exchanges that better our communication with countries who we who, who, who we get along with and countries who we don't get along with right this is this is that critical space it's it's almost a diplomatic space right and to shut those things out is is problematic for the world and problematic for a festival so countries know that if they press too hard on certain issues they're gonna get pushback from the Chinese government and I'm not sure they know exactly what that pushback is going to look like right I don't know exactly what that pushback looks like where else does it play out it plays out in academic institutions in a big way. Two ways. There are many Chinese students on university campuses in the West. In New Zealand, it's a very high number.
1: It's Yeah, it's a massive industry.
0: In Australia, it's a very, very large number. It is in the States as well, but this is a lot physically closer, right? So the travel is less expensive to get here. And those students, we know those students are reporting back to, not all of them, but some of them are reporting back to Chinese authorities on the things that various professors are saying. Really? Yeah. And I've had an instance myself at at the University of Pennsylvania where I used to teach, where I'm quite certain a Chinese student who appeared in my class Um as a master's student who was doing an exchange, in theory, um, was there for a few weeks until I told him that I want to interview him, and we set up a date and time for an interview, and then he disappeared.
1: Sorry, what what were you going to interview him for?
0: (laughs) Well, I was actually fascinated because right right away I expected that he was probably a minder, right, that he was probably somebody who was there, because I was already making the film I had already been to China. right? right. you were being
1: monitored. Yes,
0: I thought that I was likely being monitored because it was just too large a coincidence that in the middle of the semester, this Chinese student, whose English was very, very poor, um, showed up to audit my class. And I did check. He was registered Uh, to be able to uh, audit and everything, you know. Just
1: interested that, you know, they sent someone who couldn't speak English. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, not very strategic. Yeah,
0: he could speak enough, but yeah. but he did not seem like a master's level student whose English was strong. Because I've had men, I've had those students as well, and he just did not appear that way. And so, I was sort of going along with it to see just how close I could get to this guy. And so we had lunch together, and I'm asking him why he's in the U.S., why what, what is his study, and his his position was that he was doing a master's in china on education and he was studying liberal arts education he was interested in seeing how american professors teach in the liberal arts context i'm like well why a class on film sound theory you know (laughs) because that's the class that it was and um he didn't really have a good answer for for that for why he chose me who and i was an adjunct professor i was not a a full-time professor either So it was all very, very suspicious to begin with. And so I'm getting a lot of information out of him at lunch and ultimately, decided to turn the table around and say let me interview you because what you're telling me is really fascinating because i'm asking him about the education system in china and and how interesting it must be through his eyes to see what we do and if if he could express that it would be really interesting you like like being a double agent (laughs) exactly and so he scheduled an interview for the next week and i never saw him again
1: (laughs) Well. So, so yeah. So there, there are major consequences, especially for small countries yeah. like New Zealand. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I can't remember. I think China is our second biggest trading partner, something like that. That's significant. Yeah. So for us to come out and say anything, we will easily be squashed. Yeah, it's yeah. money in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what you're descri- tell you describe. I'll
0: you Can I tell you why that frustrates me? Tell me. Because, and I I talk about this issue with some friends of mine, for instance, and they say, well, we'll, you know, what are we going to do about it? We can't shut down the world economy by, you know, stopping trade with China. And the first thing I'm thinking is, didn't we just shut down the world economy over a virus? And if we can shut down the world economy temporarily over virus and come out the other end, which, you know, there's lasting effects, there's lasting impacts, but we are and will come out of that. Why can't we do that over genocide?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, at leads to the question, how do, how do we decouple, decouple from China? Because there are so many... Um, Well, as I see it, the West has made a major strategic error in empowering China to be the monolith that it is. Um, It's like, you know, the road to hell was paved with good intentions. The idea was that if we engage with China, they'll end up becoming democratic and we'll all live happily ever after in utopia. Um, 2020 hindsight vision, it's easy to see that that was a, a major mistake. So the, the broader question is, do we decouple from China? But the problem is we're, we're enmeshed in China because we've given away all our industrial base to China. But in the long run, what, what is the best thing to do?
0: Well, I would say that there's a lot of action that we can take right away. The first thing is to deal with the forced labor issue. Because it seems to most, of the academics around this Uyghur genocide and I'll continue to call it a genocide whether we're thinking cultural genocide or or, or murder um is that the greatest benefit that Chinese are getting out of it is forced labor and if we can lock down the supply chain mechanism so that we know precisely what is coming from where. And we demand a proper accounting yeah, of labor. Pro- pro-
1: provenance for products. So yeah. you're, just to clarify for the audience, Your these camps are actually factories M- and they're producing products which we sell, sell in our $2 shops.
0: Yeah, it's even more complicated than that. Some of the camps have factories on site. Some of the camps don't and they're shipping people off to factories or to fields. China is one of the biggest producers of cotton in the world, all from this region. China is one of the biggest producers of aluminum in the world, all from this region. China is uh, the biggest producer of solar-grade polysilicon for solar panels, all from this region.
1: So so we're we're talking slavery. Yeah,
0: right, yeah. We're talking slavery
1: in the in the twenty first century.
0: Yeah. And if we can shut that down, then we can actually do something. For instance, um, there are brands. If you, if your if your listeners go to uyghur forced labor, for instance, I'll, online.
1: Yeah, I'll pu- I'll put everything like this. I'll put in the show notes. Yeah,
0: yeah, we'll put a few links. We'll be pu- uh, there are a few really good forced labor links. Um, you can see some brands that we know are getting materials via forced labor. Uh,
1: big brands? Big brands.
0: Can you name some? Big European stores. I don't want to name them now because this yeah. list gets updated okay. Okay. a lot. So Refere, it's better f- better to go on to the, the list um, But because the list is updated weekly by week. Brands
1: that you and I would know about
0: brands that we know about, and also uh, both in terms of, of articles of clothing, for instance, but also stores. So, some big European chain stores, for instance, um, that you see in every city in Europe and probably here in New Zealand as well, um, and in the US in some cases. So, we'll, we'll put those links up for sure. So, pressure on those brands is a great way to go. Um, there's a plugin. I'll, I'll get you this as well. There's a plugin that you could put on your search engines that when you go to the website of one of these brands, it will tell you what their sort of forced labor score is, uh, which is very helpful. That's cool. So we can at least do something with our wallets um, by not only not shopping those brands, because we can't always know, to be honest. I mean, I, I know that someone was telling me the other day how a shirt can be sourced from forced labor factories in China and sent to Spain, but the buttons aren't on it yet. And then if the if it's finished in Spain, yeah. it can say that it's, it's made in Spain.
1: Yeah, laundering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Labor labor laundering, not money laundering. Exactly. But
0: I think that we can know some of the brands that are actually that are actually doing that. And one side of that is using your wallet and petitioning stores, but the other side of that is petitioning your local governments to have in place anti-forced labor regulations on the goods that are brought into the country. That is very important. So you have to go to your parliamentarians, you have to go to your governments and simply state that this is not acceptable and that as consumers we are not able To manage this on our own we need regulations in place we need a regulatory structure in place that's going to eliminate the use of forced labor in the products that come into our countries i think that this is a place where we can progress without decoupling from china because ultimately china's not going to turn away from the profitability of continuing trade with the rest of the world just because they'll make less profit because they can no longer use forced labor i hope maybe it's idealistic
1: Yeah. so, so you're saying there's a, a really strong economic imperative for the subjugation of these people for the chinese communist party
0: yeah yeah one is through forced labor and the other is because of the the chinese belt and road initiative which is a, a, a master plan that the Chinese government is executing um, to simplify their trade routes around the globe.
1: Yeah, so, to connecting China with the rest of the world. Physically, Yeah,
0: through infrastructure. So they've been buying ports all over the world, including one in Portugal where I live, um, rail lines, infrastructure, and the physical rail lines to get out of central China, all go through this region. They converge within this region and then they cross over into, into Kazakhstan. It's essentially the old Silk
1: Road. It is, yeah. it is. Yeah, uh, just I think this is a good point to just state, when we talk about China and in this conversation, we are talking about the regime, the, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. We're not talking about the actual Chinese people. No. They're, they're two very different things. No. Yeah.
0: The Chinese people are, are wonderful the chinese people are interesting the the culture is so different from western culture and so fascinating um and i have nothing against the chinese people at the same time the chinese people are kept in kind of a an, an ignorance and a propaganda about this particular issue so there there is a kind of a, a racism or at, at least a fear of the other that is instilled into the Chinese mentality over the the Muslims in the West. Yeah,
1: it'd be quite xenophobic, I imagine. And the other thing I wanted to touch on is how, like 1984, George Orwell's book, this, this conversation is. It's almost like They've outdone the the CCP. Have outdone 1984.
0: <laughs> it's like yes. like Orwell didn't
1: quite go far enough. Yes, I mean you know even you know with the the so called minders in the home. Yeah, I mean yeah, these things are extreme.
0: Orwell would be saying "Told you so," but also like "Wow, I hadn't thought of that." <laughs>
1: um, and so we we have this. Bizarre situation where the world is dependent on China now, because just about everything that gets manufactured is manufactured in, in China, even if it's only you know a component of, of, of an item. Yeah. And so we and I mean I've studied the um, you know the, the Nazi regime and the Soviet regime. I've, I've been a student of totalitarianism all my life. And it's almost like this is the the best one out there. How do the people of China make a change? I mean, we've just seen what's happened in Hong Kong, which is, you know, in inverted commas, a free society. And it's definitely not now. I
0: have hope for the people of China. I don't know how and when it's going to happen, but I have always felt, also as somebody who's studied totalitarian regimes, that ultimately, the more people are repressed, eventually it's going to explode. And I think that in the end, it it will have to explode. We saw during the COVID lockdowns in China, an explosion of activism from Chinese people who had had it. And, you know, their lockdown was taken to an absolute extreme and
1: went on forever. It was totalitarian. I can't even say the word just on steroids yeah yeah and um, I don't know
0: I know many of the people who protested have been arrested of course um, but not everybody because I think it's too many people I mean they could but there would be more backlash right Um, so I, I think that I think that they probably have a better understanding of the oppression under which they are living than we often give them credit for They just can't really speak out about it. They are surveilled, and the Chinese in the diaspora are also surveilled. There was a report that came out about, oh, maybe three months ago, about illegal Chinese police stations all over the world that report on their own people, bring their own people in, People who are speaking out against the regime are encouraged to return to China. Enca- Enca- encouraged, in encouraged, encouraged, comments. Encouraged, meaning basically like blackmail. They've got no choice. They've got no choice, or they have a choice. But I mean, they're not. They can't extradite them. But they, I suppose they could extradite them if they are still Chinese citizens. Um, but they, if they have family back. Then there can be ramifications for their family back at home.
1: You come back, or else. Exactly, yeah. or else
0: your niece and nephew are not getting into a good high school, right? And whatever. Uh, and the, those, the the report I think had something like ten to thirteen identified of these police stations. There's many more. There's many more.
1: In, in what countries? In
0: fact, there's one in Auckland. Are you serious? Yes. So we talk about the reach, right? We talk about the tentacles right. and the impact of, of, of the Chinese Communist Party, and we frequently think about, well, it's about the economics in terms of trade, but there's tentacles into their own diaspora yeah. that that are very problematic, because these are people who are living in the West, these are people who are often citizens of the countries in which they live. Yeah. Um,
1: it has a material effect on our own democratic system. Yes. Yeah. They, uh, you know, they talked about Stalin being Gen- Genghis Khan with the telephone. Um, would you say the Chinese Communist Party is, is way, way more effective than Stalin in his work?
0: That's a great question. I hate to compare totalitarians. <laughs> It's hard to say one is the What worse I'm trying to get other. to is yes. Yeah. I mean, A, A, I mean A, A, humans getting better at, at being totalitarian. Technology changes the game. Yeah, exactly. Right? Mobile phones, um, surveillance cameras, facial recognition.
1: So you're walking down the street AI. and you're identified. Yeah,
0: yeah. And there's AI on top of all of this, yeah. making it faster and faster and faster at identifying people. You know, you can be crossing a street, you can be jaywalking in China, which is illegal, and to shame you, your name and face comes (laughs) up on a screen. Yeah. Because you've stepped off the curb in the wrong part of the curb.
1: Yeah, for jaywalking. For jaywalking, yeah. So there's, there's, well, I'll frame this as a question. Is it too extreme to say there's no freedom? Is in in China? It depends on how we identify freedom, how we
0: define it. Um, people are free to go about their day and work and shop there, and travel free, around there, the country. There's and freedom tra- if, travel as long abroad. as you,
1: you you do and say the right things. Yeah, as long as you tow the, the party, party line. Yeah, yeah,
0: as long yeah. as you tow the party line. But that's and, not freedom. No, that's not freedom of expression.
1: Yeah,
0: it's other freedoms. I mean, let's face it. Look, it was a country that was in desperate poverty
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, just a few decades ago, and 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 poverty is largely there's still very poor parts of the country, of course, but poverty has largely been been eradicated um, thanks to the economic engagement with with the West, and so in, in a lot of ways, people are perhaps happier, certainly participating in the economy and living middle class lives and and upper middle class lives and traveling abroad and uh, as tourists, right? Sending their children abroad for school. I mean, these are things that didn't exist and these are things that in theory, in theory should make lives better. Uh, but there is no freedom of expression.
1: Yeah. Are you concerned for your own safety?
0: I'm really not concerned for my safety and maybe I'm naive to think so but thus far the Chinese government has not acted on foreigners who are engaging in human rights issues with China um, outside of China there have been a very small number of foreigners working on these issues within China who have been detained Never really tortured, but detained and for, for, scared
1: for what a day or like actually incarcerated.
0: No, for for a few a few days or a few weeks. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But and t- treated from the reports that I've heard from the three people I know, um, treated much better than their Chinese counterparts.
1: Right. Um, and would you be able to go to China now? No would you transit through Shanghai Airport? No I would not
0: transit through China anymore which is a loss to me because you love the country I do I, I really like the country and I would like to see and you more love, of it love and, the people and I would like to meet more Chinese people from 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 different backgrounds I'd, I'd love to to just dig in more not as a not as an investigative journalist just as a just human to, being. Yeah. Um, I would love to be able to dig in more. So I do consider that to be a loss, but that loss does not come anywhere close to comparing with the loss of, of families from, from Western China, from the Uyghur region. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I, I watched the film last night and I was, I was horrified. It's, it's, it's mind blowing. Just to, to finish off with, can you just talk about the, the characters in the film? So, um, Johar
0: Ilham, is uh, she's awesome and she was supposed to come to New Zealand with us and then she unfortunately got sick and couldn't fly Uh, but she is the daughter of a Uyghur scholar named Iliam Toti who is very very well known throughout the world Toti was a professor of economics at a school at a university in Beijing and His daughter, Johar, was born and raised in Beijing, actually. So she's a Uyghur girl, or was a Uyghur girl. She's an adult now, um, but grew up in an environment that was completely Han Chinese. And her father ran a, a website, a blog, essentially, that sought to get the Han Chinese to understand the Uyghurs more. for the Uyghurs to understand the Han Chinese more and this came out of a a riot in 2009 in Urumqi which is the capital of the province in western China of Xinjiang province and the riots there um, some people were killed Uh, they were anti-government protests about the general conditions under which the Uyghurs were were living and interrupted in violence there are competing reports like in all of these situations, as to how the violence began, right? Whether it was the police being overly brutal that started the violence or or, or, the, or a small kernel of protesters who started the violence, we don't know. Um, but this became one of the big excuses for instilling fear, uh, fear of the Uyghurs and fear of religious fundamentalism and separatism, because separatism would be regarded as a terrible thing, right? certainly China would not, or the Chinese government would not want to lose this land over separatists. And so her father was creating these bridges, and that was his goal. And he really felt that that was the key to securing the Uyghur position within Chinese society, that the region should be autonomous. I had mentioned earlier, it's it's technically called the Xinjiang Uyghur autonomous region and in its constitution it's supposed to have autonomy to some extent and it doesn't. It's never functioned that way and that gaining that, gaining what's on the legal books would be the solution to creating an environment in which everybody could live together. In 2013 he was invited to do a sabbatical semester at Indiana University in the States and he offered to bring his daughter just for a couple of months to get him settled and then she was going to go back and start university in Beijing. And at the airport in Beijing when they were about to leave uh, she goes through immigration the immigration line to leave no problems and he's starting to go through and they stop him and everything's taking a very long time and then some guards come and they pull him away and she's crying she was on a different line and she's crying What, what, what's going on and they say that's your father she's like yeah and they take her as well and they put them in a room and some time goes on goes by her dad isn't really speaking and ultimately a woman comes into the room uh, immigration officer and she hands Johar her passport and says you can go do you want to go do you want to go do you want to go and that's all she would say is do you want to go and Johar's looking at her dad and she's crying. She's like, what do you, what do you mean? I'm not going to America without my father. She, her English was not very good at all. Um, she had no desire to go without. It was a temporary <laughs> how, thing. How old, how old is she? She's, she's 18. She's 18. getting ready for college, right? I forget when her birthday is. Maybe she was 17 or 18. And he, uh, And he finally just says to her, go. He says, you have to go and don't look back. And he's talking to her in Uyghur so that the guard doesn't understand. Don't look back, and show the world how strong we are. He already knew he was
1: he was, he was done for. He was done.
0: He had already been detained. He had already been on house arrest. Really, all yeah, kinds, all wasn't, kinds. It wasn't the first time. No, this was not the first time. But all indications were that it was getting worse and worse, right? And so he was perhaps the first, and certainly one of the first big intellectuals with a following who was arrested. And he was first put on house arrest. She gets on the airplane. She goes to Indiana. And the professor who was going to meet them takes her in, gives her a year of English training, and then gets her enrolled in the university. And she now works in Washington for a forced labor group, Um, not for the government, for a forced labor group. And she is... That
1: that, that means a group that's... Looking at the forced labour issue. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. She's not in forced labour herself. Oh yeah. yes, that's true. <laughs> Perhaps I phrased that wrong. Yeah.
0: Um and, and and she tours the world speaking on, on this issue. So she, she is a real activist. And her father was first put on house arrest and then they had a trial and then he was given a life sentence. So he's in prison and
1: with no communication. With no communication. So the family hasn't seen him or no. heard from him. They don't know where he is?
0: Correct. Initially they did, and initially they were able to be in touch. Uh, she wasn't, but people were able, other family members were able to visit him. And I guess it was 2019 they shut all that off.
1: And she couldn't go back to China?
0: No. No. Joe Hart can't step foot in China.
1: And then just talk briefly about the the linguist, again, whose name I won't even attempt.
0: Ali Ayub, wonderful man, absolute sweetheart. He came to New Zealand with us, so he was at our opening in, in Auckland, and then he worked with the Auckland-based Uyghur community for a few days. He he taught some language classes and some songs to some children, Um And he met with leaders in the community here Auckland has a small uh, but very interesting Uyghur community and I encourage all of your your listeners to embrace the Uyghur community and and work with them which has happened in other cities and Abdueli is a linguist and he had opened up a, a school in Kashgar his hometown and the government had made teaching Uyghur language in schools illegal. So when I talk to people my age from the region, they studied in both Mandarin and Uyghur all the way through high school, and the schools were bilingual. When I speak to people who are around 30, 35, they had Uyghur education in primary school only but then it was dropped after that and people younger than that in in the recent laws I don't remember when this law came in place maybe 2014 sometime around there all Uyghur instruction no longer permitted in the school so this is part of the cultural genocide right and so looking at that law really carefully he discovered the preschool seemed to not be included so he opened up what he calls a kindergarten, which in the US, US context is a preschool I don't know about here in New Zealand. Uh, but the authorities didn't really like that. And so he was arrested. He was in prison for quite some time, over a year. Um, he was charged, he was in prison, and he was ultimately released. It wasn't, it wasn't a very long sentence. It was long, and he was tortured, and it was a horrible experience. Uh, But, and he also notes that during his time in prison, the population in the prison changed because initially he was the only or one of the only Uyghurs in the prison. He was in prison with all of these Han Chinese criminals of one sort or another. And over his, I think it was 14 months, something like that, over his time there, it started shifting to being mostly Uyghurs in the prison. It was a very interesting change that he was observing
1: so it's quite sudden
0: yeah and when Ali was released from prison somehow almost accidentally he ended up with his passport and it was still valid and he left the country he had left the country many times before that he had studied in Kansas he had He was. he's a scholar um, he had studied in Turkey uh, and he got out with his wife and kids right away and they went to Turkey. And so he, it's only because of that that he was able to survive. Once in Turkey Abdueli became a real active voice to the media for what was happening in Xinjiang. And so medi would come to Istanbul and he would introduce the press to people who were willing to speak. Some of whom are in the film, people who were in the camps and had gotten out and found some way to leave because they left maybe in 2017, 2018. After that, it was pretty impossible. Um, because these people were talking to the media it became absolutely impossible, right? Because the media started picking up on this in 2018. And um, other people who are missing family and whatever information they have about lost family they would they would be able to share with media some people who were then testifying in global tribunals on human rights issues right and so he became active in that space and then ultimately it started getting unsafe for him in Istanbul and wow and this is true for uh, many of the Uyghurs in the diaspora particularly those who were you know, not in. Not in Europe,
1: because the Chinese are putting pressure on the Turkish government. Or, correct. Correct. Right. So, so he's getting blowback from, say, Turkish police. authorities and police. Turkish police. Wow. So, wow.
0: So Turkish police might pull people in. They might be a little rough with them. They might ask right. uh, difficult questions of them. They might try to extradite them or try to convince them that they need to go back. Um, And I'm trying to think of one, one story in particular that was kind of crazy. Imagine you are Uyghur and you've gone to Istanbul to register in a master's program. Very, very common. The Uyghur language is a Turkic language. They understand Turkish. They pick it up very, very quickly. They become very proficient at Turkish very quickly. It's um, the Uyghur language is spelled using the Arabic alphabet, but it's actually Turkic. Right. So they just really have to kind of switch alphabets and learn some idioms. And so you're a student there, but you have a Chinese passport. Imagine that passport's going to expire. Because now you thought you were going to be there for three years for a master's program your family is telling you don't come back because of what's happening so you're not going to go back Because if you go back you're straight into the camps right away right you've been living abroad you're going straight into the camps so there you are with a passport that's going to expire you can't go into the Chinese embassy to get a new passport they're going to send you home so you end up stateless and Turkey is not giving benefits. Turkey is not processing Uyghurs as asylum seekers. So you're stateless. You have no security. You have difficulties with health care. You have difficulties with education. And you especially have difficulties with work. Right? That's the biggest problem. And so then you're in a position where you have no protections. Because your own embassy isn't going to protect you from anything. Right? So it's very, very problematic. And the Chinese government puts a lot of pressure on countries in the Middle East. Similar issues happen in Egypt, where there's quite a large, bigger population. Again, mostly people
1: who've gone there to study. So the solution is to get to the West. The solution is to get to the West. What, what does that tell us about the West in comparison? Yeah,
0: that's a good question. I don't want to overemphasize freedom in the West but certainly we have processes in Western countries to allow refugees who are fleeing horrific conditions to find a place to live and find a place to stay and feel a certain level of safety and security.
1: So so there is a difference. There is a marked difference. If someone of almost Turkish genetics cannot be protected by the country of Turkey and has to go to, in inverted commas, a a foreign land a completely different culture, completely different language, but a um, and also a different regime. In the West, whether that's New Zealand, the States, Canada, England, France, Norway, Europe, it's ironic. Well, I think it's a very important distinction to make because it's not uncommon uncommon to hear about how bad the West is. But to me, this is, this is uh, a, a litmus test of, of maybe how good the West is. Yeah, for all for all its faults.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny. It's funny you should mention it and phrase it this way because you know I think about my own work as a filmmaker. And this the first film that I mentioned about mountaintop removal coal mining in West Virginia, horrible thing, horrible thing happening in the United States, and it's still happening. I can make film about that. I can shout and scream about that. We can have a podcast about it. We can have a podcast about it. I can participate in marches in Washington about that and many other things, which I have. And the blowback to you? None, there's no blowback. There's no blowback at all. Yet, I can make a film about the Chinese government that's critical And I can find that there is a self-censorship apparatus in place that makes it difficult for me to get that film out into the world. A self-censorship by the institutions, the cultural
1: institutions,
0: in the very same Western countries that we're talking about.
1: The long reach of the CCP. That I find ironic. So is it an extreme question to say, is there an existential risk to the West by China? Because, the, you know, I think what defines well, for me, what defines the West? And, and when I say the West, to me, the West is just a concept. It's not a ethnic group or, you know, it's not European or whatever. Um, the, the core of it is the it's predicated on on as much possible, as much freedom as possible. Freedom of thought, freedom of movement, freedom of association. That's at the core of the, the, the very heart of what it means to be Western. So if our institutions are now being affected by a totalitarian regime like China, is that a problem for the West?
0: It's a huge problem for the West. And it's a problem that we have to wrestle with and figure out how
1: to restrict that reach. And to me, it's no different from um, the problem caused by the Nazis. No different. And we discovered that appeasement was one of the worst possible things you could possibly do. Because all it does is encourage the totalitarians to to amplify their work. Yeah.
0: You had asked me earlier, and I, and I think we sort of never got there, um, why I made this film. Yeah. And so I am Jewish. A very large half of my family tree was cut off in the 1940s.
1: In the concentration.
0: In concentration camps or in ditches in, in what's now Ukraine, um, various places. And I find myself not only seeing the parallels between what's going on and particularly late 1930s concentration camp, right? 39, 1940, where it was mostly about forced labor as well as ethnic cleansing, right? Forced labor and ethnic Mm -hmm. cleansing. So ethnic cleansing while making money from it, basically. And I find myself wondering, where were the journalists, where were the filmmakers? Were they uncovering truths and finding institutional suppression of those truths? Were people writing articles about what was really going on, filming things that were really going on, and going to their editors and finding that they weren't permitted to tell those stories? So that would be really frustrating. It's something I hope to research that I haven't looked into yet, except for a few searches online and that I got nowhere with. Was the appeasement of the Nazi Party so great as to prevent truth And is that where we are now with the Chinese Communist Party? And I also want to share that I recoil a little bit when I say Communist Party because this is not about communism at all. The CCP is not functioning as a communist entity. It's party-controlled
1: totalitarianism. That's in, in the extreme. In the extreme. It's probably the best version that we've seen historically. Yeah. Would you agree? I would agree. By I a long, by a long way. Yeah. I
0: remember reading about a year ago about some students on a campus in Beijing who were protesting over um, some services that they should have been getting under communist. I don't want to say ideology, like policy over communist policy, things that they were supposed to be getting that they weren't getting, and they were squashed.
1: So literally, to finish off, yeah, why is it called All Static and Noise? Hmm.
0: So um, in the Uyghur region, there was a... CCP local secretary who made a very big speech at a very large university in the big gym and in this speech uh, this is probably 2017 I'm guessing in this speech he was putting forth the policies that were being put in place the marginalization policies And so in this gym, he was giving this big speech. And during this speech, he addressed the ways in which people are not permitted to behave anymore. Things like the beards and the things that I had earlier mentioned. And he concluded with the idea that anything going against party rules is static and noise. It has no value. And all static and noise has to be eliminated. And it's a direct lift from this speech. It's almost a way to reappropriate that language and say, We, the Uyghurs and the Kazakhs who are in the film, and everybody else who is willing to speak out, are the static and noise and will continue to be the static in noise. And it also honors the idea that I'm, I'm not being static in noise. I mean in a way I am, and I want all of your listeners to also in one way, shape, or form, but the film, the film has no Western voices in it. Every voice, everybody on screen is in fact Uyghur or Kazakh, and they are Activists in the diaspora, and I hate that word, activists What are they? They're witnesses, advocates,
1: advocates. I Thank like, you. We I, talked about I, I that. I hate advocate. Yes, um, they're advocates, well. and advocates. they are
0: advocating for themselves, and they're advocating for their people. Some of them simply by giving testimony of what they what they encountered personally, horrific stories. We held back in the storytelling, but your listeners can find full testimonies from everybody online very, very easily. We held back, because I didn't... It's shocking enough as it is, and we didn't want to go as, as far as it goes. But giving voice through kind of a Western directed and edited film, edited by our brilliant Nancy Novak, who also, full disclosure, happens to be my partner, uh, but is a fantastic editor. She put the narrative together in a way that I never could have without her. Um, Give, using that storytelling device as a means for projecting the voices of, of advocates, um, of the advocates who were really making the static and really making the noise in spite of the risk of being eliminated, in spite of the risk of their families being eliminated, which is a very, very real risk, right? Um, even their friends, anybody who has associated with them. Um, this is the focus of the film and in that regard as difficult as the film is to to metabolize it's also really beautiful because the giving of that testimony the force of that testimony the force of Ilyam Toti who we mentioned before winning the Sakharov prize where the European Union Gives him while he's away in a life sentence in prison, and no one can be in contact with him. Gives him the highest human rights award that the EU gives, and his daughter accepts it. And her her dance, the end of the film, she gives a a a, a, a somewhat improvised, almost violent, incredibly emotional dance um, that encapsulates. The fears, the pain, the anger, and the determination all at once, right? And, and that's what we want our audiences to walk away with, to, to feel that static and noise and to become part of it.
1: Well, that's definitely what I took away from it. It is, it is a very significant film. I think you have to have an enormous amount of credit for making it. Where can people see it?
0: All Static and Noise is not yet available for public viewing outside of the film festival space. We are riding out the festival circuit after just having had the world premiere here in New Zealand. Uh, And through that circuit over the course of probably September to December, we should have some form of distribution at that point. Whether that distribution is via a traditional distribution company or whether we actually bypass that which we may need to do because of the long reach of China. Right. We may need to bypass that and do our own online distribution globally as well as having targeted screenings in cities around the world right. particularly where there are Uyghur communities.
1: So on, on the website you'll have this information as time goes by.
0: Follow us please on the website which is allstaticandnoise.com we are on Facebook we are on Instagram we are on Twitter uh, so Following us would be fantastic uh, for for your listeners.
1: And again, I'll put all those links in the show notes. But finally, thank you so much, David. It's been great talking to you.
0: Thank you, Michael. I could talk with you for hours. And there's much more to talk about on this. I know, (laughs) I know.
1: (laughs) People criticize me for the length of my um, podcast. It's just that I have great, great um, conversations with great people.
0: Very much appreciated. And we're really happy, really happy to be here in New Zealand and happy to be here in your podcast studio.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you.